Amen. Well, if you turn in your Bibles to the book of Genesis chapter 8, we'll be looking at verses 13 through 22 this morning. Genesis 8, 13 through 22. Last time we saw the flood, God's greatest judgment of the sin of man until judgment day come to an end. We saw the flood end and Noah had to discern this. I want you to notice this through natural means, right? God didn't say to him, the flood is now over. He had to see, he had to look, he had to discern what what God was doing in the world around him. He notices the rain stops. He doesn't hear it anymore hitting the ark. He feels the ark ground itself on the land and finally they're not rocking on the sea anymore, right? He notices that the water is going down. At one point, he can see the tops of the mountains. And so he's beginning to discern simply by using his hearing, his sight, his feeling, what God is doing in the world around him. And that's neat because that's the way we live. We have to discern what God is doing. We know his ultimate plan and purpose, just like Noah knew the ultimate plan and purpose for being on the ark. But when does he move on? What does he do? How does he know when to do it? He's using his senses and he's walking by faith as he does that, as he reasons, as he, as he takes in information in the world around him, which is God's world and God is working in it so he can discern some of God's purposes. What does he do? Well, he, he sends out two birds. He has those abilities and, and, and opportunities to do that. Very different birds to, to discern different things. By the way, sending out birds is something man has done for, for millennia to learn things, right? We all remember hearing about carrier pigeons and so forth. They used to do that in times of war, send out birds. And so here's Noah doing that. And, and then he, he lives, even as he's trying to discern certain things, he remembers to frame his life according to the word of God. And so he's kind and caring to animals. And the Bible gives us that wonderful verse where Noah reaches out with his hand, takes that dove, and brings her back into the ark. Noah's kind to God's creatures. And he continues to regulate his life by seven days because God had revealed the seven-day week. And seven-day weeks are not revealed in nature, but only by God. And yet all societies have them, which is another proof of the existence of God and the knowledge of God that all men have. But Noah's living by the word that he has even though he has no new word to know what to do. Until God, in our text this morning, commands Noah and his family, get off the ark, bring the animals off the ark, go back into the world. And I want you to think about the world that Noah and his family walked into. It was essentially our world. It's no longer the antediluvian, pre-flood world, where there was a Garden of Eden, there was one continent, and there was a different atmosphere and magnetic field and all that. Everything's been changed now by the flood. A year. It's been a year. In fact, if you look carefully, it's a year and 10 days after the flood started. And this world is now different. It's our world. It's a world that's been reshaped by the flood. It now has uh, vast fossil graveyards that are buried in various places. It now has all these layers of rocks that were laid down very rapidly during the flood. Some are mega sequence rock layers that we can still see today that go for more than one continent. All of those things are now in place. They're now drying. They're now forming. 
The climate has changed. The atmosphere has changed. The magnetic field has been greatly weakened. The soil and vegetation have all been completely changed and uprooted and eradicated. And all these oil deposits and veins of coal and other minerals, now they've all been planted in the earth from, again, this flood which would have churned up the ground for thousands of feet. This is the new world. Noah steps out into a world that is like our world, a world of continents. They're now moving rapidly into place. The mountain ranges are rapidly forming. The ocean trenches are rapidly being dug. And some of these things will continue for hundreds, if not a thousand years. The mountains being formed very quickly, but yet still over a period of about a thousand years and so. The ice caps suddenly starting to form. The climate again changing. All of this. And man's relationship to the creature will now be different. And we'll see that come in chapter 9. But all of these things, very different in a world that is our world. In a world that's been twice cursed. Cursed the ground from the fall and then cursed during the flood. How does this first family live in a world, in our world, before really unbelief begins to sprout again? A very important text for us this morning. Let's pray as we turn to God's word. Father, we thank you that we have your word. You don't leave us in the dark. And we even see in this word, Lord God, how Noah and his family began to live. They are our parents, everyone in this room, descended from Noah and his wife, from his sons and his sons' wives. This is how they began to live, worshiping and obeying you. Help us to learn lessons here, Father, that will bless us and glorify you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear now the word of the Lord from... Genesis chapter 8, beginning in verse 13. This is God's holy word. And it came to pass in the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, that the waters were dried up from the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark. And he looked, and indeed the surface of the ground was dry. And in the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth was dried Then God spoke to Noah, saying, Go out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing of all flesh that is with you, birds and cattle and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, so that they may abound on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every animal, every creeping thing, every bird and whatever creeps on the earth, according to their families, went out of the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled a soothing aroma. Then the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake, although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Nor will I again destroy every living thing as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer, and day and night shall not cease. The word of the Lord. 
I want you to notice, first of all, this morning, the primacy of worship, what I'm calling the primacy of worship. In verse 13, Noah has gathered from his experiments, looking out, sending out birds, observing, seeing that the earth is dry, and he removes the cover of the ark. And yet, I want you to notice that he stays on the ark another 56 days. He wants to get off that ark. You know that. Being on that ark for this long, why does he stay on the ark that long? First of all, I want you to notice this from God's perspective. Matthew Henry has a great quote. He says, God consults our benefit rather than our desires. For he knows what is good for us better than we do for ourselves. And how long it is fit that our restraints should continue. And our desired mercies should be delayed. Boy, doesn't that happen a lot? That's one of the hardest things. To be able to live knowing and seeing what you want to happen. What you think would be better. And for whatever reason, though you cry out to God, he doesn't give you that. He continues to keep you into a, in a straight place, in a difficult place. And we have to trust, as Matthew Henry says, that God actually knows better. And that he's not out to get us. He's not trying to destroy us. He's trying to work in us for our good. And he's doing it the way he has determined to do it. And we have to trust that he's wise and that he knows best. And so that's God's perspective as to why Noah's still on the ark. And I I, uh, surmised with you lots of practical reasons. Even though Noah sees the earth as dry around him, How far would he have to go before maybe he would hit some places where there would be mudslides or landslides or even whirlpools or all sorts of things as the water continues to retreat from the earth and temporary dams are filled and then they burst months later. I mean, there's all kind of dangers in this post-flood world. And so God keeps Noah on the ark for quite a while for his own good and protection and protection of the animals, no doubt. But for Noah, it's something more than that. It's not because he doesn't know that. What does he know? He knows the word of God. Now, I've already said to you, and it's important that we recognize this. Noah, just like all of us, has to live according to our senses and our minds. And we are to serve God and act and move. We don't wait, right, you know, in our beds like, well, God hasn't spoken to me to get up yet. I better stay in bed. I mean, nobody lives that way, I hope. You know that you're to keep God's commandments. You're a, a human being. You're a moral agent. You're responsible to live for him, to be salt and light. There's many things you know you're supposed to do. You're supposed to work six days and rest one. You know, honor your parents. There's so many things you know that you're supposed to do. You don't have to wait for God to give you a new word. And yet, that's not the case when it comes to worship and salvation. When it comes to worship, when it comes to the doctrine of salvation of which worship is a part, we're restored to God's worship, we don't move without a word from God. We don't decide what we're going to do based upon our discernment and our understanding. We wait for the Lord before we presume to do anything in worship, right? And that's what I want you to notice that Noah's doing. This is why he stays on the ark, Until he hears from God. Because this is God's salvation. This is not God's ordinary providence for living in this world, which Noah is already equipped to do. This is living out and and executing and responding to God's salvation. He put him on the ark to save him. And remember, Noah doesn't build the ark until God tells him to build an ark. 
Because Noah doesn't know about a flood. He's, all of this comes by special revelation. And so Noah is told to build an ark. And he's told how to build the ark, right? You're to build it by, you know, to be this wide and this high and this long. And then God tells him what kind of wood to use. Go for wood, which, by the way, we don't really know what that was. What, maybe some kind of tree that no longer exists. But go for wood and then the seal it, seal it with pitch, make it with three decks, make there be a top and a slope to about a cubit to, with the window and the, you know, I surmise the, you know, the rainwater gathering. All of this stuff, God has told him what to do step by step because this is God's salvation and Noah can't just decide what he thinks is a good idea. And that's why Noah stays on the ark. He's waiting for a word from the Lord. He doesn't do anything. He doesn't build the ark. He doesn't do anything except what God says. And even the passengers, God tells them who's going to be on the ark. And then God brings them to Noah. And Noah and his family themselves don't get on the ark. If you go back, you know, a year earlier, just a chapter earlier for us, until God says, get on the ark. And then they begin the process. And then on the day, God tells them, get on the ark. And they get on the ark. And that very day, the floodwaters came. So they never move a a muscle with respect to this saving doctrine, this saving relationship to God until God tells them how to do it. And so they wait until, notice it, verse 16 and 17, get out of the ark, take the animals out of the ark, and then 18 and 19, they get out of the ark and they take the animals out of the ark. It's because this is a part of God's salvation. They have to wait for a word from the Lord. And that's what I want you to notice. And then what's the first thing they do when they get off the ark? I mean, you think about it. You've been on the ark for a year and 10 days and you get off and you've got all sorts of things you need to do, like a house, like take stock of your supplies and determine how much fresh water you have and you know how much food and maybe begin to organize things around you, clear out some of the debris and so forth, create living spaces, trying to get the animals off, maybe organizing some pens for those domestic animals that you kept. no. Now, the first thing he does is he worships. In the great state of need and uncertainty that they're in, the first thing they do is worship. Notice it. After, after they bring every animal off the ark, verse 19, then Noah built an altar to the Lord. Nothing else comes first. Worship. And notice how he worships. Now, this is the first mention of an altar. And there's various theories. Some of them are quite interesting. One of the ones from a respected commentary that I use, Kyle and Delitz, which is a respected Old Testament commentary, conservative commentary. They surmised that while the Garden of Eden was still on the earth, that man wouldn't have built altars because God was there in the garden. The garden was the place of God's presence. That's why man was booted out of the garden. That's why the angel was there with the sword. You're not able to come into my presence. But that garden remained, as far as we know, until the flood came. So while Cain and Abel bring their offerings, no altar is mentioned because they're looking, as it were, to where God is here on the earth, where they're not allowed to go. Now that God has gone up into heaven, as it were, removed his presence from this planet, Noah lifts up his offerings onto an altar to acknowledge God isn't here anymore. And I've got to look up to God as the offering goes up. It's an interesting theory. Whatever it is, here's the thing that I I think we have to insist on. At some point in time, God would have told 
Noah, this is appropriate. You must build an altar. And if there were altars before, God would have told Adam and Eve or whatever. We already know that God himself demonstrated animal sacrifice when he killed those animals to cover the shame of Adam and Eve. And then right away we see them teaching their children that because what do they do? They bring offerings, one of the offerings, Abel, an actual animal that he kills and burns and offers to God. So we know animal sacrifice was started by God's revelation. And this was the way you worship because you need an animal to die in order to to have your guilt covered in my presence. And that's exactly what God showed them in the garden. And so Noah is worshiping according to the commandment of God. Notice it says, he took of every clean animal. See it in verse 20? And of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. What God showed them to do, Noah does. And only the clean animals. And you say, well, how does he know what the clean animals were? Well, God said seven of every clean animals are going to get on the ark. So Noah could just count. Oh, we got two of those. Those are not clean. We got seven of those. Clean animal, clean animal. I mean, maybe that's when he revealed it. Maybe it was before that. I don't know. But Noah would have known what these clean animals were. And he only offers one of the clean animals, but one of every clean animal. I want you to notice, think of the worship of Noah here, the extravagance of it. The first thing he does, his family is just getting off the ark. They don't build a fire. They don't build a house. They don't begin to take stock. They build an altar and Noah leads his family and it's really the church. This is really public worship of the church. Just so happens there's only one family left in the world. But he leads them in worship. And he offers up this burnt offering in worship. And he takes, it says, of every one of those clean. Remember, God gave him seven. So there'd be three pairs and then an extra one for the purpose of worship and of the birds. Noah's worship here is quite extravagant. Not only does he give him one-seventh, which is more than one-tenth. You all know that, right? (laughs) One-seventh is more than one-tenth. I don't know. It's a quick side story. Uh, Did you know that when McDonald's came out with the quarter pounder? Does anybody know this story? And Burger King wanted to compete with it, so they came out with a third pounder. You know, it's more. Nobody bought it because everybody thought a third pounder was less than a quarter pounder. Because four is greater than three. One-seventh is more than one-tenth. But not only did Noah give one-seventh, he gave one-seventh of all that there was in the whole world. This is extravagant worship. It's worship by the command of God. It's what God had said to do. We call this in the Reformed church the regulative principle, right? We only worship according to what God has commanded. We don't innovate. We don't decide what we ought to do. Let's, let's create a, a, a survey and a poll and see what people like the most or what will attract people. God is holy. When we come into his presence, we wait to hear from him. That's why we don't move a muscle until God tells us what to do. When it comes to worship, which is part of salvation, and when it comes to understanding and walking in salvation, right? We don't decide, well, you know, we're going to do it a different way. We're going to add works to, to grace or something. No, we do only what God said. And so this is the primacy of worship. It's the first thing we see this first family do in this new world. And it needs to be first in our lives as well. Secondly, I want you to notice the necessity of faith. I want you to notice the necessity of faith. Faith is not mentioned in this text. No, it's not. But everything Noah is doing is in response to God and affirming response, believing response. God tells Noah to do something and he does it. That's faith. That's what faith does. Faith receives, believes, and acts on the word. And we see faith 
in this whole period, if we go to Hebrews chapter 11, you know, Hebrews 11 has been called the honor roll of faith, but it begins in the antediluvian period in the first few verses. If you look at verse three of Hebrews 11, by faith, we understand that the worlds were framed, made by the word of God so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. Now this would have applied to Adam and Eve and everyone else. They knew by faith that God made the world, right? Adam and Eve didn't see it. When, when they come on the scene, everything's done. They're the last thing. And they would have been told by God, oh, I made everything on these other five days. And they would have learned that. But they only knew it by faith. And then in verse 4, by faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. And we already looked at that. That's what made his offering more excellent. He came by faith. Faith in what? Faith in God. Faith in God's promise to send a woman, the seed of the woman rather, to crush the head of the serpent, to bring the victory back to man, to seize it from Satan, to save man. Abel believed in that, and so he brings an offering. And that's why his offering was accepted and Cain's wasn't. Cain didn't believe. Cain thought he was doing a pretty good thing. By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, righteous by faith, God testifying of his gifts, and through it, he being dead still speaks. And then verse 5, by faith, Enoch was taken away, so that he did not see death and was not found, because God had taken him. For before this, he, before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. So over and over again, by faith, right? And then verse 7, by faith, Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his house, by which he condemned the world, and became an heir of the righteousness which is by faith. So here is Noah, an heir of the righteousness by faith, living by faith. That's why the first thing he does is Worship And God accepts Noah's worship. He's pleased with it. We see it in verse 21. And the Lord smelled a soothing aroma. Now, this is an anthropomorphism. First of all, God doesn't have a nose. Second of all, God doesn't smell as it were. God invents smelling. He knows all about it. It's his idea. And in his understanding, we who are bearing his image need to have these five senses in this physical world. God himself, most pure spirit, not physical. But what is this text saying? It's saying that God accepted what Noah was doing. God was pleased with Noah's faith. The offering goes up, the smoke. It's a symbol of Noah's faith. He's trusting in God and God is pleased. And that's what's going on here. God accepts Noah's offering because he's the heir of the righteousness which is by faith. God can count Noah righteous even though he's not because he believes. The same way God counts us righteous. Hebrews 11.6 says, It is impossible for sinners to please God except by faith. Without faith it is impossible to please God. Therefore this, this offering that was pleasing to God was clearly offered by faith. And faith, if you think of it, beloved, is the most humble way we can come to God. Because when we come to God by faith, we're saying, I can't do it. I have nothing to bring. I look to you. I look to your word. My hope is in something, not me. That's what faith does. It's a humble posture. It's the posture that looks outside of self because it knows there's nothing in self. That's what Noah's doing. That's what animal sacrifice was supposed to teach Israel, was supposed to teach all of the saints up until Christ came. You should die, but I'm going to kill this animal instead so that you might live. Don't 
There's no hope in me, right? And Christ comes, and as we read in the book of Hebrews in our scripture reading, he fulfills all of that because he is the ultimate sacrifice, the only one that could take away, actually take away sins. And so Noah comes to God by faith, he worships by faith, and God by faith is pleased. And he accepts Noah and his offering, even as he accepted Abel and his offering. And so thirdly, I want you to notice the assurance of grace the assurance of grace. So we should put God first in worship. We should only listen to God and we should come to God by faith. And doing this, we too get an assurance of God's grace, an even greater one than Noah had. But I want you to notice this. Verse 21, when Noah worships God by faith, it says, the Lord smelled a soothing aroma. Then the Lord said in his heart, boy, don't miss that. That's pretty profound. It's the most sort of serious thing that we could get from God. That God is saying in his heart. He's vowing as it were. And what does he vow? Never again. Never again. The Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake. And at the end, nor again will I destroy every living thing as I've done. God's swearing by himself. He's saying it in his heart. You know, like when you really mean something and you say in your heart, oh, I'm never going to eat one of those donuts before worship again because I'm so tired right now. Or, you know, a lot of times we break that, that promise that we say in our heart because we're really moved in the moment. That's not God. God doesn't get moved in the moment and then change. It's interesting. One of my uh, favorite... Um, hymns is great as thy faithfulness and it's actually written based on the book of lamentations did you know that great as thy faithfulness faithfulness is written by jeremiah the prophet in a lamentation as he's lamenting god's destruction of jerusalem god's judgment like we're getting here in this text and in the middle of that book in chapter three And that whole book, by the way, is an acrostic poem with successive letters. It's fascinating to look at it in the Hebrew. But in verse 22 of chapter 3, what great is thy faithfulness is based off of. Verse 23, they are new every morning, great is your faithfulness. But 22, it says this, and only the New King James translates it this way. And this is very literal. Through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed. Through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed. That's what God is saying back in Genesis 8. I'm going to be merciful. I'm not going to consume them again. Through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. I do not change, O Israel. Therefore, you are not consumed. Because right here, God swears, I will never again send the flood. I'll never do it again. And by the way, this is one of those passages that proves that the flood of Noah had to cover the whole earth. Because if it was a local flood, it's happened a lot, right? Hurricanes happen a lot. Tidal waves happen a lot. Tsunamis happen a lot. Some of them, that one in Japan recently, in Indonesia and in the southeast, some of those tsunamis, changed the coastland. You can look before and after. It's changed from the satellite. These floods were devastating. They swept entire villages away. They killed every living thing. And if God was saying here, of a local flood, I'll never do this again, then he lied. 
because it's happened hundreds of times since then. The only thing that this can apply to is if the whole world was flooded. Because that's the only kind of flood that's never come again. And this text proves, therefore, that we've been interpreting the scripture right. God said, I'll never send another flood. Lots of floods have come, and they came from God ultimately. But never again did a flood cover the whole earth. Even the seasons, right? While earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter, summer, day and night shall not cease. That can't apply unless the flood was universal again. Because only if the whole world was a ball of water did seed time and harvest cease for a year. Did basically day and night cease? Because you can't see it. The whole earth covered with clouds. Nobody knows the time. Cold and heat, the seasons, everything stopped. The earth was a ball of water for the better part of a year. It was creation undone. It was tohu wabohu again, void and formless. And God says, never again. I'll never do it again. You know, the Second Peter 3, 6 says, the world that then existed perished. God destroyed that old world. It perished. Garden of Eden, gone, wiped out. Everything wiped out, gone. The world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. Everything changed. The climate, the ground, the atmosphere, the magnetic field, the soil, the seasons, it all changed. I think that's why the longevity of man and the size of many creatures greatly decreases right after the flood. Right? Noah's 950, his son's 600, grandson's 400. Whatever the world was like that enabled man to live long, it's not that way anymore. And the generations quickly go to the three score and ten that Moses tells us we all get. But God assures us here, beloved, that he'll never again do it. You know, John Calvin says, every day we deserve a flood. We daily deserve a new one. And that's what God is acknowledging in this text, the one verse we left out, which we're about to look at. But I just want you to notice that apart from this grace of God, apart from this sovereign mercy that's completely unmerited, we would not be able to have the society that we have today. If God really did give us a flood every generation or even every 120 years, man would really never get out of the Stone Age. Because it takes that long. Even with the knowledge, even if we could preserve knowledge, it takes that long again. If you're on an island with nothing... And you've got to begin from nothing. It's going to take a while. You have to make some stone tools. And then it's going to take a while before you can make some furnaces, before you can get some ore, before you can melt it down. It's just society would have to start over again and again and again. We're able to live and move and have our being the way we are because God said, I'm going to not do it anymore. This is the assurance of grace. And we get this even more in Christ, right? We get the fullness. But here's the preservation. God's going to preserve this world until what? doesn't mean no judgment's coming. It means as long as the earth remains. Do you see that? As the, until the second coming, until judgment day, I'm not going to have a temporal ultimate judgment again. There'll be smaller judgments. There'll be a Sodom and Gomorrah. There'll be some other things. The Canaanites are going to be judged. But never again will God judge the whole world. And so fourthly and lastly, I want you to notice the total depravity of man. The total depravity of man. The big question in this text is why? Why will God do this? It's interesting because the liberals love the verse I'm about to read because they think it's a contradiction. Verse 21 again, and the Lord smelled a soothing aroma. Then the Lord said in his heart, I will never curse the ground for man's sake, although for, because, it's the little word key. 
in Hebrew, and it means most often for, because. I think one of the other translations has because. Read it because, just for a, for a second. I will never again curse the ground for man's sake because, here's the reason, the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Now, what kind of a reason is that? If you look at it, in Genesis 6, verse 5, that was the reason for sending the flood. Verse 5, then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Next verse, and the Lord was sorry that he made man and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man from the face of the earth whom I have created. The reason God destroyed man was because every thought of his heart was only evil. The reason now God's not going to destroy man because the imagination of man's heart, same thing, it's the intent, same word, is evil from his youth. See, see, here's where the progressive Christians, it's really an insult to the word Christian to call them that because they don't believe. When they say, they say it contradicts, the Bible contradicts itself because God can't have the same reason to destroy the world as the reason to preserve the world. And what they show when they make that claim is that they don't understand grace at all. They don't understand grace. For them, it's a contradiction that God would say, the reason why I'm destroying the world is man's sinfulness. And then to say, the reason why I won't destroy the world anymore more is man's sinfulness. And yet that's exactly what God says. He says, the reason I won't destroy the world anymore is that man is sinful from his youth. By the way, that doesn't lessen the verdict of chapter 6. It increases it. It says, as Calvin uh, writes, as soon as man can think and formulate rational thoughts, he's evil. And beloved, let me ask you, who is God talking about in chapter 8? We know he was talking about chapter 6, right? The whole world, the whole antediluvian pre-flood world. You know, some would say, like, because of the Nephilim, we looked at that a little bit. Who's he talking about now in chapter 8? Who's left? Who's left? Eight people. And yet God says of these eight people, Noah, righteous Noah, that every thought is evil from their youth. There's only eight left. I thought these were the good guys that are left. They're still sinners. Do you recognize the judgments of God do not change the hearts of men? The judgments of God never change anyone's heart. Never makes anyone better. And when God pronounced that sentence in Genesis 6, and this is proof of it, it wasn't because there was some monstrous amalgamation of demon and human giant Nephilim creature, and they were the ones who were that bad. They're gone now. And God says the same thing. They're that sinful. They deserve a flood. Eight normal people now. Believers now. God's judgment didn't change man's heart. He wasn't talking about particular peoples, a particular generation. He was talking about mankind. He was talking about human nature. This is what fallen human nature is. That's 821. Man's heart is evil from his youth. This is every human. This is the consequence of sin. This is what sin has done. 
And there's only eight people left that God could say this about. And it's, yes, righteous Noah. Righteous by the grace of God. But Noah in and of himself, every thought, evil from his youth. And the reason why this doesn't contradict itself is because this shows the sheer, as I said in my theme, free grace of God. You don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. No race, no generation has ever deserved it, but I will never destroy the world again because I'm God. Because I don't change, O Israel. Therefore, you're not consumed. I have decided to be gracious, to not send another flood, to not send another judgment. God's reason for sending the flood is now God's reason for not sending the flood. And what we learn from this is that it's not by might, nor by power, nor by our righteousness, nor by someday we're going to make God happy if we try hard enough. Someday we're going to bring the kingdom in. God is gracious with us sinners. And he doesn't destroy us, though we deserve it. What a beautiful promise this is. The promise to not destroy the world. And ultimately we know, again, that sacrifice was a soothing aroma, pleasing aroma. Why? Why? Because a couple of animals died? No, because God is, has a view, what we read in Hebrews, to Christ, the Son who would come, the promise. That's what their faith is in, that someday the seed of the woman is going to crush that head, but he's going to get his heel bruised, and that's the animal dying. Jesus is going to have to die, and God has a view to that. That's why he doesn't send the flood ultimately. Because Christ is going to save his people. And in the meantime, God said, I'm going to let the earth continue. Until that's worked out, I'll wait till judgment day. And then I'll bring the judgment. But until then, the lamb slain from the foundation of the world has paid for the sins of my people. And no matter what man does, I'm going to Allow the world to continue. Isaiah 43, verse 25. I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own name's sake, says the Lord. And I will not remember your sins. God can't say that unless there's an adequate payment for that sin. And that's what Jesus does. And don't ever think that God the Father, the God of the Old Testament, is this mean one. You know, who sends the flood and who destroys Sodom and Gomorrah. And it's God who instituted sacrifice. It's God who gives the animals to Noah in token of what God's going to give one day ultimately and has already given in his plan, his son. And God knows that's coming. Remember, it's the father who sends the son. It's because God the father so loved the world that he sent the son. The God of the Old Testament is the God of grace and comfort and mercy and salvation. He is the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is our creator. He is our redeemer. He is our God. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this assurance and promise of grace that you began back in Noah. You assured them, and therefore you assured all of us that this world will continue until your plan to save all of your people has been accomplished. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are the lamb slain from before the foundation of the world, the lamb by whose blood 
Even Noah and his family were accounted righteous in your sight. And we thank you that we now know how all of those things have come to pass. And we now have your spirit. We now are your church, your body, the representation even of your kingship in heaven as we bow the knee to you, as we live by your law, and as we bear witness to this dark world that there is light, that there is salvation, if they bow the knee to the king to the Lamb who saves the world. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.